Um, I think the problem, though, with resisting kind of critical reflection altogether is that we end up tending towards favoring our subjective experiences and pragmatic methods of problem solving. And what ends up happening there is something like what Josh highlighted for us a couple weeks ago when he read from Mere Christianity. The quote there is, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. So that's a little bit sobering. Um, The call of the gospel is simple, the heart of it. It's to give all of our being to God and to God's ways in the world. It says that our desire for God's righteous reign and creation matters more than anything else. But living that out in our daily lives requires all of our powers of discernment because our ideas flow into and out of our practices. So I'll tell you another reason why I think it's really important to do a little bit of theology, to read scripture theologically, is I think there is something missional about it. That if we resist critical reflection in favor of our subjective experience instead, what we end up believing and saying about God (laughs) will make sense only to people who go to church with us. And only the people, by the way, at our church who think like we do. So what ends up happening is the church itself becomes something more like a support group for its members rather than the communal bearer of a tradition that values truth. That kind of religion has little or no public impact because it only makes sense to insiders. It has become privatized. And right now we're in a situation where there are lots of people leaving churches. There are a lot of people, we were talking about this, that we went to Harding with who are now agnostic or atheist. And one of their primary reasons for that is that they don't think people can give a good account of their faith. They think people just believe what they've always been taught and they don't want to face anything that complexifies it. So I think we have to take this seriously if we want to be able to follow what we find in 1 Peter 3.15. We have to be ready to give an account of our faith. Now, pursuing that kind of truth is tough. Pursuing the truth is tough in any sort of study. Answers are hard to summarize. They're not usually straightforward. Certainly not as straightforward as our parents might have taught us when we were growing up, either because of the views they held or maybe because we were kids and we weren't ready for complex answers yet. All to say, this sort of exploration can get pretty uncomfortable. We ask that you stay open to that and embrace the tension. And that takes some real trust in the process, especially because we live in a world that is riddled with messages about how dangerous it is to be alive, about how we can't rely on our news sources about how we'll be excluded from our core social groups if we don't know and toe the party line. So embracing ambiguity makes us feel pretty uncomfortable. But there are answers, and we believe that we can find them together, we can work towards them together, especially when ultimately the call is that of a heart transformed before God. So I have two quotes I'd like to share, and then I'll hand it over to Josh. 
First is from Brene Brown. This one has stuck with me. I found this really helpful. She says, in an uncertain world, we often feel desperate for absolutes. It's the human response to fear. When religious leaders leverage our fear and need for more certainty by extracting vulnerability from spirituality and turning faith into compliance and consequences, rather than teaching and modeling how to wrestle with the unknown and how to embrace mystery, the entire concept of faith is bankrupt on its own terms. Faith minus vulnerability equals politics or worse, extremism." End quote. And then this other one is, I, I laughed last night actually with someone about how often we turn to C.S. Lewis, but his work is usually just so good for points we're trying to make. So at this one, at this point I'm using uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which most of us have read, I'm sure. But if you haven't, it's about four children who visit the magical kingdom of Narnia. While they're there, um, they they hear about the king, Aslan, who is this Christ figure, and they're looking forward to meeting him, and at this moment they realize that he is actually a lion rather than a man. So this, uh, two of the children are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. I'm going to read to you the exchange, and then I'll be done. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I share that because I think we're all here because we're more ready for something good and true than for something safe. It's not fair to quote one of the best lines. Uh, I always get teared up when I some of C.S. Lewis's uh, stuff. Um, yeah, we've we've talked some about uh, how important it is that that we don't too quickly go for the easy answers. I have a student in class in my Genesis class, and what do you think, Dr. Strahan? You know, she just wants me to give her the quick answer to all these difficult questions, and I keep pushing her back. We're not ready for just a simple answer about uh, what I think on this. And I, I get that, that desire to have um, something easy and simple that we can just grasp onto. Uh, but that's not, I mean, we know that's not how life works. Uh, how do you have a good marriage? What are the five steps? It doesn't work like that. You can't just plug in five things and have a good marriage. How do you raise kids? Here are the three things you have to do. Simple. No. How do you practice medicine? Well, you just plug the, uh, the symptoms in, then here's the exact solution. How do you paint a beautiful picture? Well, you just color by number. Like, nothing great uh, comes that simply. Um, the best things require a kind of nuance and complexity 
uh, and I think it's true um, in our relationship with God. It's not because uh, we can't um, we can't say this enough. It's not because we think it's all up in the air. Uh, it's not because we think uh, this ultimately doesn't matter, or it's fiction, or anything like that. It's, in fact, because we believe it so deeply matters. Uh, and it's, it's so true, uh, and it's uh, so necessary to our everyday life uh, that we can't, um, we can't take unnuanced or uh, easy answers. Um, Elliot, I don't know if Elliot's back in here today, uh, asked a question on um, last Sunday. Uh, what's the new foundation? If, if some of us had, have thought about the foundation being uh, a particular kind of flat way of reading scripture um, in which you highlight these ten verses above uh, the other thousands of verses, there is something simple and comfortable about that. Uh, you know your ten verses, you know the steps, and as long as you're within that range, nothing, there's nothing to worry about. And that works until you actually start to push it. Or uh, you get missional and you try to speak to someone outside and then you realize, oh, this doesn't hold up anymore. And, um, and maybe we need something more than that. Uh, I'm gonna give you a couple things that I look to or kind of ways I think about uh, how we navigate or think about what is foundational. Uh, we've, we've done this, that whole, um, uh, quadrilateral scripture, tradition, uh, reason, experience, and how you kind of go around this, starting at scripture perhaps, uh, but wherever you start, you end up thinking uh, scripture is foundational, but tradition, experience, reason uh, can help us um, can help us understand scripture better. So we, we've covered that uh, somewhat extensively. So let me give a, a second way that might, that you may or may not find helpful, but this is kind of how I, I think about foundational stuff. Um, so we've got something like the biblical plot line, um, and what I might call the great tradition. So these are those teachings like uh, you might find in some of those early Christian creeds that, that people have been confessing for since the beginning, basically, uh, where you get things like a um, more nuanced view of, of the nature of Jesus, fully God, fully human, or the Trinity, um, where you uh, get Jesus' teachings. Uh, all of Scripture uh, should be read through this lens of love of God and love of neighbor. And then you might have something like uh, the clearer and repeated teachings of Scripture. Some of those ideas that keep showing up again and again and again. Um, and then what I really appreciated how Matt did something like this at the beginning of our class to draw attention to the kind of way in which these ideas are in conversation with one another. That's the beginning of my, my drawing there. So it's not, I'm going to add more to this. Uh, it's not just um, a few doctrinal ideas about uh, who God is or the nature of the Trinity, uh, nor does it include every single teaching. Uh, so it's neither really narrow, um, which lacks much distinctiveness, or so broad where 
Um, everything is part of it. Um, but, but it's trying to bring together this overarching framework um, that you get from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, what the church has discerned from the very beginning, how Jesus has taught us to read, uh, and then you have these kind of distinctive teachings that show up throughout. So, so far you're kind of with me. And this is, this is not as simple. Um, it requires more nuance, but I think it can ultimately uh, hold up a bit stronger than, um, yeah. So this might be a stupid question, but just to be clear, the map you have here, the diagram here, represents filling that blank. Yeah, so this is, I'm lacking a perfect metaphor, but something like a foundation or a tether or boundaries, it's kind of all of these things of how we, how we think theologically. So this so is kind this of how I think theologically. This is the basis of our beliefs. So going back to Eliot's question, what, what do we replace our old system with? This is kind of something along what, how I think. So within this, you might have, I would distinguish between, even within this, you have some things that are central, you can discern. So within this paradigm, some things are just central, like, like uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you might even think how the biblical plotline points you to this, the repeated teaching of scripture, love of God and love of neighbor. Nothing shows greater love than the incarnation and death. The great tradition keeps pointing you back to Jesus. So you have these central things um, about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit uh, that show up. Um, yes? When you did that, I, I couldn't help but think you had the cross. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, it does seem as though scripture is pointing us there. That's, that's a happy accident, yeah. That was intentional. I mean. <laughs> um, so you have something that I think is central. The next layer that's maybe here is what I might call not central, but necessary. So here the difference. One is, is this is the center of our faith, and the necessary is, and this is part of how we live within the faith. So not everything that's necessary is central. Everything that's central is necessary. Is that distinction making some sense there? Um, so God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, central kinds of things. Um, but by being a follower of, uh, and faithful to this triune God, there's going to be some necessary things that follow from that center. And then uh, we get, I'm going to get this kind of a dotted line here, that might represent that which is debatable. So when you look at the biblical plot line, the great tradition, the love of God and love of neighbor, clear and repeated teachings of scripture, some things are necessary. Then there's this kind of gray area uh, where uh, these, when the, you bring these things in conversation, there's this question like, all right, how precisely do we navigate that? Scripture and the creeds, and all, they're not entirely clear on a handful of issues, or maybe more. And this might be places where Christians can agree to disagree. And then, outside of this, you might have what is distinctly uh, unchristian. So, an imperfect kind of diagram here, but, but this maybe is capturing... Um, a thicker uh, kind of system uh, by which we might um, yeah, understand who we are, who God calls us to be, and what it means to be Christian. Um, so, neither so narrow uh, that we lose some distinctiveness, uh, nor so uh, wide uh, that everything equally matters. There is room for gray areas, but there is also clearly some things that are off limits. 
Um, and give an example of something necessary that's not central. Okay. Um, let's see. Something necessary that's not central. Can you give me an example of something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. How about uh, something that shows up a clear and repeated teaching of scripture uh, that is distinct to Christian um, teaching is sexual. Their teaching on sexual morality. This is something that is kind of stuck with the church from the beginning. Jews were distinctive in this. Early Christians were distinctive in this. Uh, even now. So, is sexual morality central to Christian faith? No. Uh, central is, is God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. But is it a necessary um, uh, way of living as a Christian? Yes. Would that be a fair one? Um, up here in the debatable uh, category, um, well, it's hard for me to put something up here without just changing the trajectory of today's class, huh? <laughs> yeah, um, maybe we'll put um, something up here like, how about uh, baptism? As whether you do it as an infant or an adult. So, uh, this would be one where baptism is necessary, but the mode are maybe sprinkling or immersion. Uh, the churches have, that would be even better, uh, the mode of baptism might be a place open for debate. Out here would be um, denial of the resurrection. <coughs> and we could fill that out even more. Yes? As you're talking about this, uh, one thing that I'm thinking about is how where you've got the blue line and the orange line, there's over time certainly been lots of debate about exactly where those fall. And, you know, some people would argue salvation issue, and mm -hmm. say it's not at all, and other people would say this is debatable, and some say no, this is mm -hmm. serious. Right, so um, working this out, this is, this is much clearer, central is much clearer, it should be, I think, um, and as you work your way out, there is going to be some area here where it's difficult to know, uh, and that's one of the reasons I have these tensions in between is because there's, there's still room for some ongoing dialogue and some, um, some new, not like new revelation, I have this experience and now <laughs> this is new canon or something like that, but you know, maybe, maybe we missed this. So some people might put the, um, the issue of like women in leadership uh, positions here. And I don't want to get us off track, but one way of dealing with this might be that, that for you know, several hundred years, uh, it seemed as though women could not be in leadership in the church because of uh, their reading of this. But then when fresh eyes came to this, it wasn't, we have new experience, we're just going to throw all that out, but, you know, let's look at this with fresh eyes, uh, and we actually see, you know what, maybe the biblical plot line is teaching us something different about the role of women. And, you know, the great tradition doesn't really get into this much. And love God and love neighbor might get us thinking somewhat differently about this. And, you know, scripture isn't that clear on this after all. First Timothy seems that way, but... Uh, Romans 16 doesn't. Um, so this doesn't just close the conversation off, um, but it does maybe help you see where the conversation is mapped. So um, something up here doesn't need to divide the church. Um, something down here is a dividing issue. We, we cannot go there. <coughs> out here. Um, so, yes, yeah, please add, add to this. Well, like the, the baptism example is a good one because... To many of us who think, oh, adult baptism is so obvious, right? But then think about within our own tribe how we talk about, well, what age is the age of accountability, right? <coughs> so, and we have plenty of people who 
are rebaptized because they're not sure they meant it the first time, right? And so that's a real, for us, that's a real great area too. It's just with a different set of parameters, perhaps. Yeah. Chris? Um, in this model that you're showing here, which I like, um, and dealing with the idea of certainty, um, it, it kind of seems like we've been deconstructing some certainties, but there's certainty within this model. And so the question is, are we, you know, in, in this course, are, are we looking to uh, focus and relocate, reduce the amount of certainties that we have? Uh, exchange some of our certainties, maybe. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to, to address this. Um, early, even in some of our earliest accounts of, of um, baptism in the church, there would be this two-year kind of preparation period um, in the early church, as though the church recognized that if you're going to get into this, you need to know what you're getting into. And to know what you're getting into, it takes time. Uh, and so part of our what we're doing in this class, I'll just keep mixing up my colors here, this is our spring semester, our fall semester right here. This is so much of what Laura and I are, and Matt are working on is, is this piece of the, the picture. Uh, and then next semester, we're planning on hitting this a little bit more because we think to do this well is not something you can do in a 45 minute class or even in three months. This is a, a longer project to get this more robust, nuanced um, uh, framework. Uh, so, and I think hopefully the end product is a better understanding of what is central, what is necessary, what is debatable, and what is distinctly non-Christian. Um, but it takes some time, I think. It takes a lot of time. So, uh, follow-up question. Um, and I'm ambivalent about the question. So, uh, are, we, are we deconstructing and reconstructing where certainty is located or certainty itself as it has to do with faith? Um, I think as Christians we believe that there is certainty. I mean you can't do a science experiment and, and prove it, but part of being Christian is to say there are certainties that we must hold on to. Um, and some of those certainties um, we discern not just through our experience, but through what the church has taught us from the beginning. Uh, and so rather than, than uh, locating certainty in the kind of fads, this is what seems to happen in the church. You have these kind of faddish movements um, where certainty keeps maybe shifting. And we're trying to say, I love C.S. Lewis's title, Mere Christianity. What is that mere Christian kind of center uh, that includes some of that necessary stuff as well. <coughs> That's aware and in conversation with the fads and trends um, because they might help us see something new we missed, but is not going to be overhauled or overtaken by whatever fad might be in right now. Whether it's, you know, the, the movement in American Christianity 20 or 30 years ago that was uh, particularly kind of politically um, Conservative, which that is not a, a mark on being politically conservative, but you can see how the evangelical church kind of got got married to uh, that movement, or the kind of other swing of the pendulum now, where it's social justice and the church are getting kind of married together, 
um, where there's something those might both help us see, uh, but neither of those are central to what it means to be Christian. Being centrally Christian is not being primarily about social justice, nor being primarily um, Republican, uh, but it's about being one who, as Lauren so nicely put it, which I'll botch, uh, one who's given fully over to God as Lord. And it may or may not contain some elements of those other things. Yeah, and what I would probably just Please say clarify, is that, yeah. no, no, I just as an extension of what you're saying is that we absolutely can have certainty, but it's a certainty that breathes, right? That can be in conversation that if someone asks you a challenging question, like, well, how do you know Christ was resurrected? Well, that's, that's a complicated conversation to get into with someone. But then you start having this conversation, and it's something you think you have this kind of deep well to draw upon, and you're, you're not just saying, I can't talk to this person, right? Because what happens with fundamentalism or literalism or something that can't be challenged is that it's brittle, it breaks. So you have to protect it, you have to withdraw and protect it. But a kind of certainty that is founded in this kind of rich tradition that breathes, it's one that you can use in conversation with people. And you can, it, it grows, it expands, it, it can account for new things, it can, so that's what's so wonderful about uh, reading scripture with a kind of centering core, right? And then having a, understanding the church tradition this way, is it really gives you a solid foundation for your faith in a way that you didn't have before, probably. At least that's how I've experienced it. That was a long journey for me. Yeah, yeah. and we should think that it's going to be a long journey. Yeah. That's, I don't think there's a way. There's no shortcut uh, to it. We're not saying you need to get a theology degree, no. uh, but but I think we all as Christians um, need to make space to love God with all of our mind, um, as we're all called to do. Um, and sometimes that's that's difficult. Um, <coughs> all right. Yes. To, I, I'm not the. I never get to hold the camera in the family because I'm so bad at it. So, so yeah. <laughs> I, I let me let me kind of marinate on that analogy um, because I think it's it seems like it's there's something to it. Um, Mm-hmm. 
and we still, I still wrestle with the concept of repentance. If you, have I really turned away? Have, yeah. I, have I changed my character? And wrestling with sin and, and confessing Christ is an everyday thing. It's not a once a it's not a, Right. But everything was crowded into the central. Yeah. And so when you, when you missed one, and, oh my goodness, I missed one. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's thinking about wrestling with it throughout life. It's not a one time event. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, but yet, you can do that wrestling with confidence. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wrestling with confidence. That's, this is very nice. All right. I'm, I want to talk to you after and, and think yeah. through this. Because uh, I, yeah, I think you're onto something, but I'm so bad with cameras uh, that I'm afraid I'm missing the analogy. Um, I was supposed to give this back over to Lauren. So, you sure? All right. Let me. Let me. We're supposed to cover um, the covenants. Uh, with Abraham and Moses. Let me do a, a very short little bit on that and so that uh, Lauren can... So this is the part of the biblical plotline where we're finally moving out of um, some of the creation stuff. And just a, a quick look at the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses and how that's preparing uh, for uh, what God was going to do through Jesus and in his church. So... Uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham, chapter 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis. And he says things like, I want to make uh, many nations come from you and many kings, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, uh, but I expect you to walk before me and be blameless. The sign will be circumcision. Uh, Your call will be to be a blessing to the world. Uh, And then he has a child of promise through this unusual birth. And there's some really beautiful parallels about how that's going to get more fully Uh, fulfilled in the new covenant with Jesus. Not just uh, nations coming from Abraham, but one day all tribes, tongues, and nations uh, will come into the kingdom. Uh, He promises kings to Abraham, and through Abraham's lineage will come the king of kings, who will establish God's kingdom on the earth. Uh, Not only will uh, Abraham's lineage inherit the land of Canaan, but when it gets more fully fulfilled, all the groaning creation will be restored. Just as Abraham was expected to have faithfulness, so in the new covenant, those who follow uh, Jesus as Lord are expected to be faithful to his lordship. The sign of circumcision is now circumcision of the heart, or baptism, or the presence of the Holy Spirit. The vocation to bless the world continues in a new and robust way. The child of the promise that came through two elderly people uh, in this unusual birth uh, is even more uh, significant in the virgin birth. Uh, So just noting these kind of parallels of what God was doing in this early covenant and how it's not just this harsh disconnect as God was like, I don't know what I was thinking of that earlier covenant. Now I'm going to do this Jesus thing. Uh, But you see how it's it's kind of pointing and preparing for what's to come. The Mosaic covenant, uh, we might draw some similar parallels. Uh, I think we are, unfortunately, we've inherited some baggage from some of the Protestant Reformation uh, where uh, Luther got us thinking that the law was all bad, that there was no grace, and that you had to earn your salvation uh, through the Jewish law. But a close reading of the scripture uh, reveals that you don't earn your salvation, but it was God had even chosen Israel by his grace. Uh, and they were expected to be faithful, but that faithfulness was not a way of earning their salvation. The faithfulness was a way of staying within the covenant that they did not earn their way in to begin with. God brought them in by grace, Um, and they are expected to be faithful. And the covenant itself uh, is pointing towards what Jesus is going to do. 
uh, as there are um, laws in the Mosaic Covenant that address uh, the brokenness between God and humanity, that address the brokenness in the kind of social order of humans and humans, and even address the kind of uh, the way that humans are to live within the created order. Uh, and so that prepares then for the parallel of the new covenant. Again, not a harsh disconnect, uh, but the new covenant that Jesus establishes is also going to be by grace. Um, and it's also going to expect faithfulness. So rather than having this contrast of the old law, no grace, all works, new law, all grace, no works, no, both, there is grace that initiates and brings you in, and both expect you to live faithfully according to the terms of the covenant. And whereas the old law um, had ways of addressing the kind of physical, social, spiritual brokenness, what Jesus does from the new covenant also addresses that, but in new and greater uh, and more profound uh, ways. So just wanting you to see how that trajectory uh, has some connection there. So I'm going to really quickly add a little bit to the uh, thinking about the covenants. I have a handout, but... I don't know if it's too distracting to give it out now. Okay. Um, so one, another way to think about kind of what we're doing in here in, in like a, from a broad, broad perspective is that we're looking at the unfolding drama of God in Scripture, the drama being God with us. So that happens in five acts. The first act is creation. The second act is Israel. The third act is Jesus, the Messiah. The fourth is the continuation in the church. And the fifth is the full realization of it in the new heaven and new earth. So uh, this is kind of how we're tracking these, these, the five acts, the five act drama of God's narrative. It's a theodrama, theological drama. So your handout kind of tracks wh where we've been so far. Gives you a little bit of a closer look at what we've been saying about creation and now what we're saying about Israel and sort of anticipating what is to come with the Messiah. So I want to say uh, something to be a little more specific about something Josh mentioned already, uh, the notion of election. So what we find, so we, we've said that from the beginning in Eden, God creates something like a temple. Humans are called to participate in the emergence of the fullness of what God is doing with creation. So they, humans from the beginning have a special job. We set aside that call. We have the fall into sin, this degenerative spiral downward away from wisdom into violence uh, that leads us to the story of Noah and the flood. And what we have there is something like uh, Noah's call to be a second Adam. So there's this restarting, right? And he has the chance to kind of get humanity back on the track of wisdom. But we know that doesn't work out. There's a broken family system there. Uh, it, we le that leads us to the Tower of Babel. Eventually brings us to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is the Abrahamic promise. Founded on, this is what Josh mentioned, uh, God selecting a family, not because they are set apart as more righteous or there's something about them that they're going to be privileged and other people are not, but because uh, there's a call here to a sort of vocation. So there's a lot of talk in, you know, amongst Christians about what does election mean, so I think it's really important that when we, when we think about this in terms of the whole, the whole span of the biblical story, that we see this as vocation, that God gives people a sort of privilege, but it's a privilege to serve, and it's oriented towards God's telos for the world, God's goal for creation. 
So Abraham is being used for God's purposes. God is working through him. Uh, if you, when you read those verses closely, you notice the repeated I. I'm going to make you numerous. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless all families of the earth through you. So this is God's work. Um, and Abraham's blessing is not exclusive. It includes all families and all people, as Josh pointed out. There's also the land promise there that the whole earth will be redeemed. That's, we see that as echoing what God's been doing from the beginning. So um, basically, I think what's important here is to hear election as something like uh, God's assurance to us through, that he's going to work through Abraham never to give up on humanity and creation, but to work specifically through this family towards redeeming the world. So what is at risk in Adam and Noah is here kind of reassured or secured by God through Abraham. This sheds light on Israel's election or vocation. We could think of Israel, what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be something like the New Eden. The nations are supposed to come to Israel to learn and then return to their homelands, uh, expanding Eden that way. There's also what we see in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. Moses is addressing the people. Their neighbors are just supposed to say, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. And that's supposed to be because of their unique relationship with God. But as we know, Israel falls away from this. They fail in this task as well, this calling. And what we find is God's faithfulness does not fail. When we fail, God remains faithful. God is infinitely creative, even to the point of becoming human himself. So when Israel fails, God becomes Israel, the new Adam. Uh, so this is the remnant, Jesus the Messiah, the elect one, as we're told in the New Testament. The elect one humbled himself taking the form of a servant. This just highlights for us to be elect is to serve. That is the invitation. So I would just say that uh, this is our vocation now. So that repeated language in the Old Testament of being fruitful and multiplying, that's the same language we find in the Great Commission in Acts, in the language of going into all the world in Romans 4.13. This is still God's purpose for creation, and we are invited into the vocation of election. It's the vocation of God's servant priesthood. So I will stop there, and we still have a few minutes. Where is Matt? We lost him. There he is. To hear what Matt wants to do with this material. That was really helpful. Both. It was a good class day for me because I didn't have to talk yet. My job is a, a little bit to summarize what I heard and, and just to sort of contribute. One of the things I really appreciated was the prayer you, you prayed from origin because it goes back to one of the things we wanted to reiterate today, which is why are we having this class in the first place? What's the point? Because sometimes that can get lost. Even in the middle of lots of interesting discussions, the, the whole purpose can be lost. And so I, as I listened to that prayer while I was thinking about that that burden of explaining and reminding us why we're here, to me it boiled down into, into four things. The purpose of us spending this time together here is to help us learn how to read and to encourage us to read Scripture, the Word of God. But it's also hopefully designed to help us read better, read with understanding, as Origen said. Help us, God, to understand your Word. And that's, that's where theology can help. But the point of understanding is also practice. Oh God, help us to live out your truth in our lives. 
And the prayer reminds us too that the, that the end result of good practice for all Christians is love. That's the test of whether or not we're living it outright is if it looks like love. If it doesn't look like love, we might need to back up and, and think. So that's, that's my way of, of reminding ourselves. The point of this class is, is to encourage us to go back into Scripture, to read Scripture, to think about how we read Scripture so that we can understand it better, and to understand it better so that we can put it into practice, and to make sure that our practices wind up going in the direction modeled for us by Jesus, which is the kind of love that can wind up on a cross sometimes. Another thing I liked was the idea of, of what this class is going to feel like. And you mentioned, we talked last week and this week about that discomfort. Sometimes a destabilizing moment is liberating, and sometimes it's just frightening and gut-wrenching. And I like that notion of, of, of learning how to wrestle with ambiguity. No, nope, not wrestle with ambiguity. I like this better. Wrestling with mystery is at the heart of Christianity. When I say mystery, it might be worth reminding ourselves of what we mean when we talk about mystery in the context of faith. Um, somebody has explained the difference between a riddle and a mystery as this. A riddle has an answer. You just need to find the key, and then it unlocks everything, and then everything is certain. That's a riddle. A mystery is something that's just mysterious. It's true. We don't understand how it works, but it works. The great mystery being the love of Christ, which leads him to die, and how that blood washes all our sins away. Christians have been wrestling with that mystery for centuries. It's not a riddle. It's a mystery. It's a great mystery. In our own lives, the mystery of, of human love would be my, my example. The, the reason Mary and I have managed to stay together for about 37 years is really a mystery. <laughs> but, but in the deepest sense, the, the, there are things that are operating between us that have operated that only God knows why they worked and why they happened, but they did. That's, that's what we mean by mystery. And learning to wrestle with mystery in Scripture right, is, is a way of understanding our discomfort with the absence of certainty. That what we're called to as people of faith is to believe in the certainty of the mystery. I know that sounds a little bit oxymoronic, but that's what we're called to. And it's always going to feel like tension. To go, back to, the, to go back to the dramatic logic of Scripture, what I teach my students about all dramas is that all dramas... I'm not going to erase that great map. Every, every movie, every, every play that you watch, every good story, there's always a, a tension. What, what makes the story work, what makes it a story, is there's this pull in two different directions. On one side, pulling in one direction, is the status quo, the way things are, our idea of how everything is supposed to be. That's the easy part. The hard part is real life. The reality of the world we live in is that the way things ought to be always gets changed. 
challenged, right? Mainly because there's human beings in the world and people do things that don't fit in that model. Right? That creates tension. For us, what we believe and how we're supposed to live according to that belief is always in tension. Some weeks we might have good weeks where everything seems to flow just like we think God intended it and we're happy. And then we know there are other weeks where what's happening can't possibly be what God intended. What do we do now? And the life of faith is always dramatic in that sense. We're, we're called to deal with that kind of tension in our lives. And I think the real value of, of the map, I think that's the best word for this, is this helps us represent how we wrestle. This is almost like, um, yeah, it's almost like a, a wrestling ring that can help us understand better how we think about things by helping us understand what ought to be central, how we might have put things in the central category for ourselves that other people don't see as central. I think the infant baptism one is a good one. I remember in my own life, growing up with a teetotal, in a teetotaling family, there was a certainty in my life as I grew up that beverage alcohol, as we used to call it, was absolutely wrong, and there was, that was a certainty in my life. And you've, you've heard my story about my Lipscomb experience. There was a point in my life where I remember being in a Sunday school classroom in Louisville, Kentucky, as a college graduate, arguing with full certainty that one sip of alcohol made you one drink drunk. <laughs> you might, nobody might know it, but you were. Right? But that was when I was 21. And I'm a little older now. And I understand that my certainty about that, which for me was right here in the core of what it meant to be a member of the church, um, wasn't shared by the church. And my ideas about that have kind of moved out here. I still don't like to drink much, right, for lots of different reasons. But I'm no longer going to stop fellowshipping with people who believe otherwise. Because that's not central. Other things are much more important. Does that, does that make sense? So I hope when we were talking about the, the problem of certainty, theology helps us map what we think we believe. And thanks to these helps, the biblical plot line, the great tradition, the reminder that what's really important is to love God and love our neighbors. And in Scripture, we can frame this map as a dynamic map because humans, as long as humans live, things change. But the value of theology is just, it's, it's what helps us wrestle with what is ultimately a great mystery that we're nevertheless called to live out. Like any great play, You've got a script. The great mystery is, what's it going to look like if we decide to perform this play with these people this week in this place? And what's it going to look like? Yeah. <laughs> and there'll be tears. <laughs> I think we have to quit, don't we? It's 10.50. So. Thanks for being here. It's over. It's over.